welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. This is Christine. I am so happy to be back with you guys. Some of you may have noticed that the episodes look like they're numbered a little bit differently and that it says season one. Well, that is because I've decided to change the podcast into seasons. So all of the episodes up until now, all 30-something of them, I don't even remember, uh, have been season one. So we are going to take a couple months off for the summer just to relax and catch up on recording really great guests, then edit them and release them in a more organized manner than I have been doing lately. So there will be some more regular episodes when season two comes back. But that being said, I would love to record guests now. So if you're like, hey, I've got a really great story or I'm just finding the podcast and I really want to reach out, do it. This is now is the perfect perfect time to do it uh, because I have a little bit more time and I would love to hear from you. So definitely get in contact with me. But that doesn't mean this is the end of season one. This is not the last episode for sure. Uh, there are two more episodes in season one, and then we're going to take a little bit of our summer vacation and enjoy some time off in the sun with plenty of SPF because I'm very, very pale. Although everyone should be wearing SPF and covering up because, you know, skin cancer is not funny. And this is not a comedy podcast, as everyone knows. So now that the administrative stuff is out of the way and you have all been given a brief lecture on the dangers of sun exposure and skin cancer, let's get into this week's episode. If you haven't heard the first episode about the Boston Marathon bombing, I would really suggest you go back and listen to it. It is with my lovely father and his experience about Boston and the Boston running community. And I think it's important to listen to that episode first because it really explains who the runners are, what the city of Boston is like around the Boston Marathon. And it kind of shapes why that city is so resilient, why people love this marathon, what it was like for the people that suffered through this catastrophic terrorist attack. And again, I was not there at the finish line, but one of the physicians that I used to work with in EMS was there. And I am so privileged and so honored to have Dr. Brian Canterbury on to talk about his experience. And he is just really one of the nicest guys I have ever worked with. And before we get started, I just wanted to say about Dr. Canterbury, he's one of those physicians that that doesn't act like a physician in that they act like they're better than you. He was always a great example of a team player, of someone who was respectful to everyone regardless of their position, who really was a huge supporter and still is a supporter of EMS. And when I was working BLS, you know, very much the bottom of the food chain, he was one of those examples of providers, someone I wanted to emulate when I eventually became a provider. So I am so honored to have him on here. And he kind of espouses all of the things that I try to share with this podcast as far as equity in medicine, respecting others' roles, and really seeing the value in everyone as a team player in all of our different specialties. So it's great to have him on and hear about his role in one of the largest incidents in Boston's recent medical history. So I am so thrilled to welcome onto the podcast, Dr. Brian Canterbury. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. We met 
quite a while ago, back when I was working in EMS, and you were, and still are, an ER doctor. (laughs) But I had quite the first impression of you. I'm sure you don't remember, but you started working at this tiny community hospital. And I want to say this was like 2010-ish. When did you start working? It it was 2010. Okay. So, wow, that was pretty accurate. Again, you probably don't remember this, but we had had this really crazy code. Of course, it was like, you know, third floor. The medics could not get this tube on this guy. It was He was super obese. He had like the biggest tongue in the world in this super anterior airway. And I remember we called it in on CMED and they were like, yep, no tube. And we're in the ambulance bay and I had just parked the truck and all of a sudden, this guy is in the ambulance bay and then walks in, opens the doors, and we're like, who the hell is this? <laughs> and you jump in and you're like, hi, guys, I'm Dr. Canterbury. And then you just tubed him in the back of the truck and we're like, oh, shit, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we were like, okay, we like this new ER doctor. <laughs> <laughs> not the craziest thing I did at that hospital, but not far behind either. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you weren't telling the jumping on the stretchers stories or the uh, uh, get it, tackling patients because they were trying to escape stories. <laughs> that was a wild hospital, but that was definitely probably one of the first memories I had. <laughs> so you're not there anymore? Are you at a different hospital? Yes, I, I moved from there uh, about three and a half, four and a half years ago. Okay. I went to a hospital that was just a little closer to home, so less of a commute. And, uh, you know, a little bit easier on the home life. Hopefully a little less wild than that particular city. It was a little bit notorious. <laughs> it, it, it was. And I still see some of your former co-workers in, down at my new hospital. And uh, we, we often laugh together over some of the stories that came out of that place. <laughs> well, pretty much this podcast came out of the stories from that place. So I have a lot to be thankful for, although I think I have a little bit of uh, nightmares from it as well. We all have PTSD from that place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the real reason I wanted you to come on, obviously, is to talk about one of your, um, I will say, most impactful stories. I was in grad school when I heard you tell this. Of Listeners of the podcast know my connection to the Boston Marathon. Well, I, I was not there at the finish line. You were. And you just give us a little bit of background with your involvement with the running community. And I know you're a triathlete as well. Yeah, so I've been doing tri- triathlon since 2009 was my first one. And, you know, running and, you know, doing whatever else, uh, running, biking, you know, swimming, uh, doing road races. <laughs> all three. <laughs> yeah, all three in the same day. Uh, doing road races and half marathons, marathons, 5Ks. And, uh, you know, even was able to uh, make it out to do uh, the Iron Man in Hawaii, you know, Kona, the one that's on TV every fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was 2012 that I did that. But uh, ever since I moved to Boston, I'd been volunteering at the Boston Marathon at the finish line in the medical tent. You know, I, there's always plenty of volunteers at the races I run, and I always felt it was important for me to give back to the to the community, the running yeah, community. Yeah. So uh, my first go around in the uh, finish line medical tent was 2010. Uh, or excuse me, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 2011 get it, got my feet wet. 2012 was a really hot day that year. It, yep. it, it, hot for running. Uh, it was like yep. seven high seventies or low eighties. We were literally dunking people in ice baths that day. Yeah. 2012, I was working on the ambulance too. And it was just so miserably hot. And, uh, 
you know, we had patients who uh, in the medical tent who had uh, core temperatures of 107. Oh my God. Uh, you know, rectal temperatures and were literally throwing them into an ice bath, which was an adventure in and of itself because the ice baths were big enough that the patient could slide into mm-hmm. and they were altered. So somebody had to literally keep their uh, forearms under the patient to maintain airway and keep them from slipping under the water, which means that your arms were in a 32 degree ice bath too. So a bunch of us were really cold that day on an 80 degree day because we were dunking patients. We dunked 15, 18, 20. I can't even remember anymore. Oh my God. But, uh, you know, so that was the 2012 year in 2013. It was a beautiful day. Absolutely gorgeous day. It was, yeah. I remember uh, looking up at the Old South Church and thinking to myself, man, you know, I, I, it's such a gorgeous day. I'm wondering why nobody broke the record today, you know, the two hours and three minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember tweeting that day on my uh, Twitter feed, you know, I hope to be uh, really underutilized and mostly bored today. Mm. And uh, we, we all know how that turned out. Yeah. And so how long had you been an ER doctor at this point for people that don't know you? Uh, I've... Started my residency in 2006 and finished in 2009. I trained at a level one trauma center. My first year out, uh, I was in Cleveland. Uh, so from 2009 to 2010, I was in a level two trauma center. So I had very good trauma training and experience. And so this was 2012. I'd been finished with, excuse me, 13. I'd been finished with residency for almost four years at that point. So this was well into experience and well into being an attending. How many other physicians, providers were there at the finish line med tent? There's other med tents, but the big one at the end. Yeah, there were two medical tents at the finish line. There's the A tent, which had, I believe the number was about 55 physicians in it. Oh, really? And there's B tent that has significantly less. Okay. And out of those 55 physicians, physicians, excuse me, most of them were family practice physicians, sports medicine trained, uh, pediatricians, a handful of cardiologists. And I think I've been able to count five ER docs out of that whole 54 or 55. Oh, wow. I So I didn't even, one, realize there was that many doctors and two, realize that the specialties were that varied. I mean, cardiologists are great when you're working a code, but when it's a trauma, yeah. you want an ER doc. That makes a difference. So the day is beautiful, as New England spring days can very rarely be, <laughs> but they are truly are gorgeous. And then how is the day going for you? So we were seeing some runners here and there. It was not as busy as we were expecting or as it had been the prior two years for me. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have one patient and two nurses working with that patient, which is unusual because usually it's like one nurse to several patients. And the guy who I very specifically remember taking care of, you know, he was a little bit dehydrated, not horrible. We had an IV line in him just because we felt we had to do something. <laughs> we had nothing else going on. We've got all these supplies. Might as well use them, right? Exactly. You know, we had the supplies, the, the, the people who know how to use it and somebody who could, you know, it's probably a little bit of a soft call, but let's, let's, let's start an IV line, check it, check his electrolytes, mm. make sure he didn't drink too much free water on the course. <laughs> so I remember standing there and I was taking care of this patient and the nurse whose name was Bill, uh, was standing there. And all of a sudden I heard an explosion mm. and I have no military background. I have no explosives training, but I knew it was a bomb. Yeah. I don't know how I knew. I was hoping against all hope that it was a transformative. These giant TV jumbotron screens 
to show the race right. close to the finish. So you can see when they're in Wellesley and when they're in Framingham, who's winning, all of that. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping it was a transformer or it was a generator or one of those, but deep down I knew. And then the second one went off, uh, you know, some seconds later, 20, 30 seconds later. And I remember looking at Bill and with the sternest, calmest voice I could say, or I could muster, I said to him, go see what that is. And he looked at me with these giant eyes and didn't move. Like, okay, you're as scared at this point as I am, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) The patient who we were taking care of kind of looked at both of us and said, I think I'm ready to go. You guys are going to be very busy for a long time. Oh my God. And we disconnected him, got him out the door. And uh, at this point, uh, the uh, Johnny Anderson, who is the announcer in the tent, and I know his wife, she's a charge nurse in, at the hospital that I currently work. His job is to say, oh, you know, we need more supplies, you know, to section four, section 17 needs more blankets. I remember him very clearly saying, tend to your runners. We will find out what's going on. Stay calm, tend to your runners. And then all of a sudden his, not his voice, but the the tone of his voice changed and it said, we need all doctors and IV nurses to the finish line now. Oh my God. And took off running fast. And how far were you from the explosions? Around around the corner. And I realize that's kind of vague. Uh, like a city block? Maybe a, half a block. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't like line of sight? No, I was not line of sight. So the explosions happened about halfway down the Boston Public Library right off the finish line, the first one. The second one was further down. Yep. And I was near the front door of the Boston Public Library. So you figure the Boston Public Library takes up about a block. Mm -hmm. So I was probably three quarters of a block to a block away, but it was around a corner. And how many nurses were working with you? That part, I don't know. You figure there's uh, 16 sections each had between four and six nurses. So maybe a hundred, but only certain nurses... Uh, because they don't want everybody having access to IV supplies because then way too many people get IV lines. Right. (laughs) If you've got it, you're going to use it, you know? Yeah. Only certain nurses are designated as IV nurses, and they tend to be the ones who volunteered at the marathon for multiple years. It's almost like you've volunteered for X number of years, we're going to move you up to this new position, and you kind of float with your IV supplies to the various areas that need you. Mm Mm-hmm. So they wanted, uh, they asked for the physicians and, you know, most of us took off running and the IV nurses to go to the finish line. So you take off running around the block and what site hits you? So there was a very memorable photograph of Jeff Bauman being pushed by this wonderful young lady and Carlo, Carlos Arroyo or something. Arroyo, something like that. I'm blanking on his name. Uh, is basically holding his femoral artery and keeping him from bleeding out. When I'm running to the finish line, I have this thought in my head of why are they running a mass casualty drill on Marathon Monday? This is silly. This is a marathon. You don't run a mass casualty drill during the actual marathon. Right. And then I saw Jeff being, being escorted by Carlos, and it snapped into my head that this wasn't a drill, that this was real. Oh, my God. And that's you as an ER doctor who has seen so much trauma. I mean, you worked in that hospital that I went to all the time with the worst trauma of the worst trauma. And it took that for you to kind of recognize it. Someone's femoral outside their body. Yeah. I had two other thoughts as I was running. And this gives me a real appreciation for the military and first responders that I never had is there's going to be another explosion. This was after the first two. I was expecting another explosion. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and I'm never going to see my family again. Mm. So it was at that point that I, reflecting back, I have a true thankfulness and appreciation for all first responders and the military. Just, you know, nobody was trying to blow me up. Nobody was shooting at me, but I still had that thought of there's going to be another device and I'm never going to see my family. The other thing that happened is I remember somebody from Boston EMS running opposite of me, going towards the finish line medical tent as I'm not even to the where the first explosion was, and saying, we need airways. Oh. Between the combination of those several things of uh, seeing Jeff Bauman, seeing, uh, thinking I'll never see my family, and hearing about needing airways, it, something just clicked in me and I went into, I'm an ER doc, this is what I have to do. Yeah, work mode. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was work mode. I, everything else got put off to the side. And so what does work mode in a mass cow look like for the ER doctor? You, oh boy, that's a great question. It's ruling out the life threats, doing what you need to stabilize the patient. And the the difference being is it wasn't being brought into me. I was on scene, right. which was completely new and different. I've never done, I've never been a medic, never been an EMS. And that was new to me because usually I have a little bit of a warning. Even if there's no warning, it's my environment. Right. You know, I know where all my tools are. I know where this is. I know where the bougie is. I know yep. where the, uh, you know, and I've got all this help. Well, here I am in the middle of Boylston Street in a mass casualty incident trying to figure out who's in charge. Oh, wait, nobody's in charge. Right. Okay. What do I do to stabilize the patient in front of me? Somebody grab a board, put a tourniquet on that. We need this. Somebody do that. You get out of my way. I don't care if your family get out of my way. <laughs> yeah. Did anyone get triage tags? Do you start going for the most urgent cases? How do you get notified that those are the ones you should be treating? How does the organization start playing out? There were no triage tags initially. Uh, what we were doing in the middle of Boylston Street is we were truly just throwing on tourniquets, putting people on boards for transport and trying to get them to the finish line medical tent where that we turned into a triage station. We actually were doing way too much on Boylston Street. Yeah. Some people were starting IV lines for the sickest of the sick. We didn't need IV lines. We just needed tourniquets and to get them out of there. That care under fire that we learn as army medics is tourniquets yeah. and screw. Yeah, you know, scoop and scoop and screw, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you know, we didn't know if somebody was planning a, another attack. We didn't know what was going on. There, we, we stayed too long doing too much, as I as I mentioned when we do this. And it was a BLS scene. Yeah, you know, talking to to the uh, EMS audience, it was a strictly BLS scene. Throw on the tourniquet, throw them on a something to get them out of there. You didn't need RNs or MDs. You probably didn't even need medics, other than the fact that they're probably better trained for that situation than RNs or MDs. You know, we got everybody out of there, and then we got them to the finish line tent, and then we couldn't find the triage tags. Mm. The three sickest patients never got transported. The three that did not survive, they were uh, basically DOAs. There was no need to transport them. We tried resuscitating, uh, but there was... Uh, there was not going to be successful, especially for the one who uh, uh, passed away with the first bomb. Mm. Another vivid memory I have of that day is I, for some reason, I had a Sharpie on me. I don't remember why, <laughs> but we, because we couldn't find the, the toe tags, yeah. excuse me, not toe tags, the triage tags. Yeah. 
I was literally going around with a Sharpie and writing triage numbers on people's foreheads. Uh, you know, you, you use what you have. Right. And big, you know, number three on somebody's forehead because they were going to be group three. Yeah. I was also asking people who were about to go into shock or who were in shock, give me a phone number of a family member. And I was writing the patient's name and a phone number on their chest. Mm-hmm. Or writing it on a piece of paper and shoving it in a pocket so that way when they got to whatever six level one trauma centers we have in Boston, they were able to at least have something if they weren't able to communicate. That's something that's so interesting because in army medic training, they always said it was always have a Sharpie on you. (laughs) Yeah. So you start to make some sense of all of this chaos and do you go back to the med tent? What is going on in the med tent? Are the family medicine docs triaging people? How are you breaking up the labor of all the different specialties? We were very fortunate because Boston EMS uh, was helping with the triage. And in general, I've heard and I, I, to some extent, believe, and this will probably irritate some of my physician colleagues, that triage is best done by those with less experience. Not less experienced triaging, but when you're the doc, and then when I did some tactical EMS training, you know, I first started thinking, oh my goodness, in this tactical EMS training, oh, I would want to get a CT scan on this woman. <laughs> okay, you have to get her to that the hospital first, Brian. Right. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing. If you have a BLS or a medic who's doing the triaging, they're probably going to be better at it than the than any of the doctors, even the ER doctors. You know, we're trained in it, but we don't do it that often. We don't train in it that often. Right. That's not what your brain jumps to. Right. You know, the brain jumps to what do I have to do to get this person going in the right direction? You know, family practice, uh, you know, uh, sports medicine trained, you know, they're phenomenal for helping out at the end of a, of a marathon. Yeah. It's, you know, a mass casualty incident with traumatic injury is not necessarily their scene. But Boston EMS was there and they were really helping out on, in addition to doing, all, you know, so many of the transports. I think the numbers are there were 90 patients transported in 30 minutes. Holy shit. Yeah. And, you know, you know how long a single transport takes, yeah. you know, and there was very little paperwork and three people in an ambulance. The advantage that we had, though, uh, of all those patients is we had, as I mentioned, six level one trauma centers, one pediatric, yeah. uh, you know, the other five for adults that could accept all these patients. So it wasn't like they were all going to MGH or all going to Brigham or all going to BMC. They were being spread out based on this Council of Boston teaching hospitals that it was set up for essentially a mass casualty incident to make sure that no one hospital got inundated with a hundred patients like what happened in the London subway bombing. Or in Vegas, yeah. Or in Vegas when they ended up in two hospitals, I think. Yeah. I remember listening to CMED that day and CMED was doing roll call of, you know, who's going where and listening to our dispatchers in Boston dispatching ambulances to the scene and there were ambulances just waiting in line to get to the finish line, load up and then go out from all these different agencies. It was just crazy to hear it from a dispatch perspective. The dispatchers were really, I mean, just phenomenal in their level of organization as they should be. Yeah. So how long were you treating patients for? I mean, I'm sure it just felt like forever. It was probably, I think they gave us the all clear as in you need to evacuate the tent because we think there may be another device in here Mm. at, see the bomb went up about 4.15 or 4.30 from memory. But the initial bolus was in the first 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. So probably by about 3.30 because the bombs went off about 2.50, about 3.30, we, were, we had everybody going in towards 
the hospital at that point. And we were all kind of looking at each other. Well, now what do we do? And that's when uh, a little, just a little after that, when we're all looking at each other and we're all finally calming down, we're checking each other to make sure that mentally and physically all the other volunteers are okay. Mm -hmm. That's when they said, um, we need everybody to evacuate the medical tent now. And there was, there wasn't much prelude to it. It was get your stuff and go now. What did you guys all do? Did you go together? Did you just disperse? We dispersed at that point. And, you know, basically there were only a certain number of places around Copley Square, which is where the finish line medical tent is, that you could exit the marathon area. Mm -hmm. And happily, the one that I needed to go to was further from the marathon course. So my thought was, okay, the further I get from the marathon course, the further I get from crowds of people, the safer I'm going to be. What was one of the most memorable patients you had in that whirlwind of 40 minutes? I remember bits and pieces of being on Boylston Street. I remember a lot of being on Boylston Street. I remember a lot of what happened, but I don't remember much of the patients. I remember the traumatic amputations or partial amputations, a lot of blood. Uh, But if you were to ask me about any one particular patient, it just, it's all a blend. Mm -hmm. One of the vivid memories I have of running towards the uh, finish line, or excuse me, where the bomb was, if you've ever been on a warm summer day and there's a piece of food on the ground and then this mound of ants just kind of all crawling over each other to get to the food, yeah, that was the sensation I had of running towards the finish line. Is I couldn't tell any one individual body over there. All I saw was all these people moving. On the ground or running towards? Run, running towards people trying to help. It was just this constant motion, this mass of humanity and constant motion in a very small area. Mass of humanity. That's a very positive way of, it sounds like a very positive thing, even though obviously there's a lot of suffering in there. Yeah. You know, everybody, there was a lot of people who were there to help. You know, there was no screaming or wailing or moaning or crying from the patients. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of activity. There was a lot of distraction. But the patients themselves, the the victims, if I'm allowed to call them that, mm-hmm. were quiet. They were obviously in shock, but I don't remember hearing much from any of the individual patients, but from everybody around them yelling for help. We need this. Who's got that? I want one of those. So again, just this vivid, these vivid memories of this, the scene as opposed to any particular person or any particular uh, injury. It's always so weird when you think back on significant events like that. And of course, I've never had anything that significant, but having worked in EMS, you go to these crazy scenes and you just get these bits and pieces that stick out with you, but other things you completely block out, you don't remember at all. And just certain images just kind of get burned into your mind a little bit. How did you come down from that? How do you deal with the rest of your day afterwards? So at that point, my brother-in-law was living in Boston, and I had parked at his house. He wasn't home, but I was able to get a key to his condo. As I'm walking there, that's when the third explosion actually happened. It was a controlled explosion. They found a backpack. Didn't know it at the time, but I'm sitting here going, there's the explosion I was waiting on to kill me. Yeah. So got to his house condo and realized that I had blood on my badge, my shirt, my shoes, my shorts, everything. It wasn't mine. I wasn't bleeding. Didn't know whose it was. So one of the very first things I did was jump in the shower and probably spend a good 20 minutes in the shower just trying to not shake. Mm. I fairly quickly sent out an email to people with whom I worked and said, 
I'm supposed to work tomorrow. Could somebody cover my shift? Yeah. <laughs> because I knew I would be in no mental shape to, right. to work that day. Waited until my kids went to bed and then I came home. Mm. And I, excuse me, I shouldn't say kids. I only had one at that point. Mm. The second one was on the way, but I didn't want him to see me all shaken up. Yeah. You know, he's eight now. He was almost three at the time, but I didn't want him to see me all shaken up. And because it's hard to explain to a three-year-old what you just went through when you can't even explain it to yourself. Yeah. And you're used to telling people bad news all day long and you can't even explain that. Right. And so waited until he went to bed and then I walked in, saw my wife and my mother-in-law and uh, talked through what I had seen and had done. And then my mother-in-law said, you should probably take an Ambien or you're never going to sleep tonight. (laughs) So you're right. <laughs> so I took an Ambien. And at that point, Ambien worked on me for about five hours. And I mm-hmm. could almost time it. And sure enough, I woke up five hours to the minute after I took the Ambien with the sound of the explosion in my head. Oh, my God. Yeah. So lots of talk over the next few weeks. You know, the folks from your uh, former employer were absolutely wonderful. They would stop up. Some of them very visibly coming in just to give me a hug and say, how you doing? Some of them would stop up to quote unquote, grab supplies just to check in on me. Yeah. Family called, friends called, uh, people reached out to me in so many different ways that, uh, you know, you can't even keep track of all the ways that people were, you know, checking in on me back then. We all knew somebody. I mean, my company, there was so many of us that were at the scene so many of the nurses and doctors who were at the scene, fellow people that we'd worked with were at Boston EMS. I mean, everybody knew someone that was there. And then just that feeling of waiting to get blown up again was what it was like working on the truck the rest of the week, just waiting for them to find the the bombers. It was just a kind of a surreal community experience for everyone kind of in emergency medicine that week Yeah, and the weeks that followed. So on a funny note about that week, if we can say anything that week was funny, One of the physician assistants with whom I worked on that day, when they shut the city down, they said, do not leave your house. She sent an email to work saying, I'm not going to be able to make it in today. And the head of the department emailed back. And this was an email going between all the providers, all the PAs, all the MDs, and said, you are essential personnel. They have to let you through. You have to come to work. (laughs) She very politely turned around and emailed and said, there are bullet holes in my car. I'm not leaving find somebody to cover my shift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. Oh, God. Yeah. So for anyone that does not know the series of events, the bombing happened on a Monday. And then so there's this manhunt. They're looking for the bombers the whole week. The FBI is there. And this is like right where we're working. And then in Cambridge, they um, they shoot an MIT police officer who is then uh, brought to Mass General. Um, where actually I was there when they brought him in. And then I didn't know it at the time, saw it and was like, this is horrible, and then went to bed. And then that kicked off this manhunt that shut down Boston and Cambridge and Watertown for 24 hours. And they were just going house to house, searching every house. There was a shootout in Cambridge, shootouts in Watertown, and then eventually they shot one of them, or shot both of them, I believe, and found one of them in a boat. Mm-hmm. And then one of them was arrested and sentenced to death eventually. But that's how it played out in this whole crazy, absolutely batshit week of uh, of Boston. <laughs> 
but I'm, and I'm laughing just at the insanity of it all. But yeah, I ended up meeting someone years later who lived in Watertown going, oh yeah, these are bullet holes in my apartment from the shootout. And you're like, oh yeah, oh, okay. This is just part of the history now. Yeah. Yeah. They, I had to go into work on that day and, you know, essential personnel, I had to go in. No bullet hole excuses for you. No bullet hole excuses for me. And the shift I went in for usually would have taken me about an hour, hour and 20 minutes to get in at that time of day. And I made it there in 30 minutes because there was nobody on the street. Boston, everybody had heeded the warning to stay home, yeah. stay in your houses. Then they lifted the order and they said, okay, you get, people start to resume your normal lives. And, but they still hadn't found the second guy who was, yeah. you know, now we know hiding in a boat in Watertown. So I'm driving home and all of a sudden, all of these black suburbans start screaming past me, lights and sirens, like, okay, something's going on. I'm just going to go home and turn on the TV. And sure enough, it was at that point that they uh, were, had found the uh, second person. Yeah. And it was just some homeowner that was like, my boat cover looks a little bit weird. Yeah. Because this was April and then the guy was hiding out in there. Yeah, they had just lifted the ban, like, well, we can't leave the city on lockdown forever. And everything was dead. Boston just didn't operate that day. There are some great pictures of Kenmore Square, you know, a very busy area of Boston. And there's not a single car in the middle of the day. And that's what it felt like after the marathon, too, because I was at work and everybody cleared out afterwards. So it'd be like six o'clock, seven o'clock that night. There was nobody on Sturrow Drive at six o'clock on a Monday. It was empty except for police. It was a ghost town. Mm -hmm. Absolutely deserted. So how did you end up recovering after all the time? Do you still think about it? It's become an event in my life, like a trauma that I took care of in residency mm -hmm. or a particularly memorable case. But it doesn't bother me with a few small exceptions. In the first month to six weeks, some of the things that would happen is I would wake up in the middle of the night or during the day with a sound of the explosion in my ears mm. that's diminished and uh, I'll come back to that in a moment for about the first two weeks the uh, the noises of the ambulance would throw me and thinking of the hospital where I worked at the time the ambulance bay was right there yes not a good thing for somebody to be bothered by yeah. sirens but you know and every once in a while something would happen like a went to the uh, airport in Boston got in the elevator to take a trip. And this would have been less than a month later. And all of a sudden, my wife told me that the color drained out of my face. And I, I practically sprinted off the elevator. And I couldn't figure out why it bothered me at first. But then I realized they did the birds of Massachusetts sounds in the elevator. <laughs> and it sounded just like the chirping of the fire alarms on Boylston Street. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just some little things like that, like a sudden loud noise in the middle of a quiet night shift. Mm -hmm. I, it happened and I immediately just went and found the first nurse and said, I need to hug you. <laughs> like I need, I need to have a human connection and contact at this point or I'm going to fall apart. Yeah. And I would get headaches every day at about 2.50 in the afternoon oh. until one of the uh, combat medics who worked for the ambulance service uh, said, yeah. Go have a go have a steak and a beer, and the headaches will go away. <laughs> I I like you know what, Jim, you've been through this more than I have. I'm going to make it a wine and a steak. Sure enough, the headaches stopped. Mm. Um, but at this point, it's it's just something that has happened in my life. I don't get overly emotional about it. I, it's it's 
not changed my life. I don't do things differently now. You know, I've never been a big one for crowded places anyway. So it's yeah. not like I'm going to go down to the 4th of July at uh, the, the shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I still hug my kids as much as I would anyway. So yeah. Does it change the way you look at emergency medicine or how you approach certain cases at all? Not really. It, if anything, it's given me a greater appreciation for EMS and pre-hospital providers and what you guys go through, what EMS is all about. Now, I'm sitting in an ER. You guys bring people into me. You know, The ambulance comes in and I take care of them. Or they come in through the front door and I take care of them. But actually to be there on the street when it's fresh and having to throw out clothes because of it. Yeah. You know, that that just gave, as I mentioned earlier, just gave me a far greater appreciation. I mean, I've always been a fan of EMS, uh, but it just made it, made it so much more concrete and solid to me. Yeah. You don't appreciate that difference until you kind of have done the other I would remember we would have residents come right along with us. And um, I I definitely made a few vomit, but. (laughs) (laughs) As they should. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's really important for all providers to kind of step outside their realm and and try something different and and getting to see what everyone else does and and appreciate their own skills so that, you know, you can really respect what they bring to the table. And Mm. and it is really different to walk into to chaos and try and figure out what's going on with whatever supplies you have. And that's the the pride of the medics, you know, <laughs> Exactly. but then again, you have, you know, the clinical decision-making and all the tools and all the cool stuff you get to do in the ER, which is so, so different than what you can probably do in somebody's living room, <laughs> despite what we tried to do. Yeah. When, when I give the talk, I, I put a picture up of the resuscitation room of, uh, of the hospital and, I'm like, this is my environment. This is this is where I work. You know, I've got everything I need. I've got a cappuccino machine. I've got mood lighting. <laughs> I've got, you know, a little bit of background music. I've got nurses to flirt with. <laughs> and then I show a picture of the back of an ambulance that's obviously had a major resuscitation in it. Yeah. And this is where you, you know, this is where EMS works. Um, if it has done anything, I do think more about not so much the individual patient, but what do I do if this happens and I'm in the hospital, how do I marshal my resources? Who do I call? Where do I put people? You know, what do I do to be on the receiving end? You know, if this happened at the beginning of the marathon course, it's a far different outcome. You know, the hospital that's closest to Hopkinton, where the start of the Boston Marathon is, mm-hmm is uh, Milford Regional Hospital. It's a very nice ER. It's a phenomenal ER. It's not a trauma center, and it's not set up to be the receiving point for the 35,000 runners or 30,000 runners that start in Hopkinton. Now, they start in waves, but right. you know, you've, you know, if you figure if you divide that out into four, you know, 30,000 divided by four, you know, you've got 7,500 people waiting to start a marathon. How do you take care of a hundred of them if you're at a small regional hospital. It's it's right. hard. And 26 miles is a long time to drive even with a trauma. Right. You know, Milford is eight miles away, but still they're yeah. not set up. Yeah. You know, so you're going to UMass, you're going to Boston, you know, med, med flight can only take one, maybe two patients at a time in a helicopter. Right. So who do you decide who gets it? Right. So, you know, having... This experience has made me more in tune to disaster management. 
who do I call when the ER, when this happens? Okay, if I have this many patients show up as a mass casualty, with whom do I speak? Who is the closest physician who lives to uh, the hospital where I work? You know, because I'm not calling the head of the department first. I'm calling the guy who lives closest and then calling the head of the department because the head of the department lives 45 minutes away. I've got somebody who lives five minutes away. Right. I'm calling who can come in and help me. You know, it's little things like that. But as far as taking care of individual patients, I would say one of the biggest things to come out of it from a healthcare standpoint is tourniquets. Yes. Yep. You know, they're suddenly back in vogue. You know, they were and then they weren't. And now they are again because people saw how much of a benefit that we had at, uh, at the marathon. You know, we were using everything. People went home that night without shoelaces or without belts. And, you know, I had, for some reason, and I still don't know why, I had trauma shears on me. And I remember somebody handed me a Boston Marathon finisher's medal saying, cut off the metal, we want to use the ribbon as a tourniquet. Oh my God. It, it makes the Boston Marathon finishers medals that I have a lot more meaningful. Yeah. My dad has one of the ones from 13 and he says he will never, ever give it up. I mean, he will never give his up anyways, but that is his, that and the one from 14 is his most prized medals ever. Yeah. As they should be, anybody who finishes, but I can understand how 13 and 14 would yeah. be that much more. Yeah. So my my little pause and my little spiel is improvised tourniquets, anything you have, but ideally two inches wide, two inches above the injury, or two inches above a joint. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much high and tight for hasty tourniquets. Just whatever you can, yeah, till you see the bleeding stop. <laughs> and if it doesn't stop, put the second one on. Yeah, yeah, two rule of twos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> rule of twos. So. To finish up a little bit, what would you say to any other responder that has been through something so big as this? What advice would you give them? Start talking to somebody else. If you're still carrying it with you, if it still bothers you on a daily basis, find somebody who is there or find somebody who is in a similar situation and start talking. Talk as much as you want or as little as you want. There were days when I was going through the aftermath where I didn't want to talk at all. Sure. I remember a very dear physician and friend who's like, so what was it like? And I just wanted to turn to him and say, shut up. I cannot talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But there are other days where you're like, do you got a second? Because I really just, I need to get a little bit off my chest. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be more than one conversation. It's going to be multiple conversations over multiple days. And if you can't find anyone to talk to, there are professionals if this happened in a workplace, there's usually some version of the employee assistance uh, plan mm -hmm. or excuse me, program, yeah. you know, find somebody who is a friend that you can talk to, uh, you know, somebody, preferably somebody who's quote unquote been there, done that. But even if not that, just somebody who you can, you know, as the, as they would say in Australia, vent your spleen. But what that really mm -hmm. means is just talk. I think that's one of the greatest things that I did was just talk afterwards, which is why it's an event, but it's not an overriding life thing to me. Yeah. I think talking through a lot of the traumas, big or small, that we have is just completely you know, valuable and you can't put a price on that. Sometimes professionally and sometimes just you need someone to recommend a steak and a beer. Yeah. And it's not even going to be the uh, big mass casualty incident that yeah. throws people. Maybe it's the first time you see a dead body. Maybe it's the first pediatric code that makes it or doesn't make it. Yeah. 
maybe it's the first time that you've witnessed a victim of child abuse or spousal abuse, whichever. Yeah. It can be any number of things that just triggers. For me, I one of the cases that still bothers me most from just being a, an ER doc was a little boy who was the same age, same blonde hair as my son at the time. Uh, the only reason his mom was alive was because when she would start to nod off from her methadone overdose, she would say, wake up, mommy, wake up. Mm. And that's the only reason she was alive. Otherwise, she'd be dead and he'd be motherless. But that case, truthfully, bothers me more than the marathon does. Yeah. <laughs> as silly as it sounds. Yeah. I mean, there's certain things that just get you. There's, you know, I'll be shooting the shit with old partners and they'll be like, oh, remember this absolutely horrific thing? And I'll go, no, was I there? And they're like, yeah, you said this. And I go, oh, oh, yeah, that sounds like me. I was there. <laughs> and then, but then there's something else that, you know, like I did an episode about uh, a fatal fire and that just sticks out in my mind of it's so vividly or a pediatric code that was actually a good outcome sticks out in my mind. There's just some things just you just remember other things. Your brain just says, nope, I've had enough of these memories. I'm not going to, I'm not going to process this one. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm done thinking about this one. Let's just I've put it someplace else. I got for, enough for of this now. stuff. <laughs> this is going to get filed away somewhere. Well, I thank you so much for talking to me. Do you have anything else that you want to you want to discuss from that day or, or tell people that are listening? No, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. And if anybody has any specific questions as to the day or anything that happened on that day or my point of view, I'm always happy to answer questions. I can be found online pretty easily. You went actually went back and ran the marathon afterwards, right? I was one of the ones who ran in 2014, uh, you know, with your dad, although I <laughs> Fairly certain he finished before me that year. I don't know. He's he's getting slow in his old age. <laughs> As someone who's never run. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're smart enough to run away from bombs, not run towards them. <laughs> I wait till they explode. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so I was able to run in 2014, and that helped as well. It turned the marathon into something other than an event, an explosion, a horrific thing. It turned it into a celebration. It was 26.2 miles of celebrating. There were people along the entire course. It was truly a party the whole day. And it was just basically the Boston community's way of saying, up yours, this is ours. You're not taking it from us. Yeah. And it felt awesome. Yeah. This is our fucking city. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is the famous line. <laughs> and then you ran it again this year. I did. I ran it uh, this year because my brother qualified. And I always told him that if he ever qualified, I'd run it with him. And then he qualified and I had to keep up my end of the bargain. You had to go. I had to. And <laughs> I didn't want to, but it's my brother. Yeah. <laughs> had to. Well, those are way better memories and probably a lot longer <laughs> in your in your mind than than those 40 minutes of terror. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. What is your Twitter handle so people can check out your tweets? TriDocB, T-R-I-D-O-C-B. You know, I'm triathlon and a doctor and Brian. Yeah, well, that works. <laughs> well, thank you again for taking time out of your Wednesday and letting our schedules mesh up finally to talk about this. This was, this was a fantastic episode. I'm so grateful that we got to do this. No worries. I'm so glad to have uh, joined you on this evening and you have a good night. You too. 
If anyone wants to get in touch with me on the podcast, you can always reach out at antidotespodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, antidotespod. Instagram is antidotespodcast. And then again, there is Facebook, which is Antidotes Stories in Medicine Podcast. I would love to hear from all of you. I am recruiting more guests for season two. I'd love to speak with you all. So please let me know if you would be interested in being a guest and we will set something up. Have a great summer. There are still two more episodes to go for season one. So make sure you are subscribed and you don't miss out on any of the stuff that's coming up. All right. I want to say, of course, thank you to Peter Hopkins for our amazing custom intro music. And I will see you all next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. 